0: I began working on this message um, the day after we found out that Kobe Bryant had been killed in a helicopter accident along with eight other people, one of whom was his 13-year-old daughter. Now, I'm not an NBA fan. Um, In fact, and this is not an exaggeration, I, I would bet you that I have not watched more than five minutes of the NBA since Michael Jordan was a Chicago Bull. So, I mean, we're talking... We're talking 20 years plus at this point. I'm just not an NBA fan, but even I understood what a big deal his death was. I knew immediately that his death was going to be one, on, one of those when and where things. When did you find out where were you? For me, uh, his death was going to be like, uh, and this is an old guy alert, uh, like it was for me when I found out that Elvis had died. And... Uh, A lot of people under 40 are saying, who? Uh, But uh, ask your grandparents. Uh, I remember where I was when when Elvis died. I remember where I was when John Lennon was murdered. I remember where I was um, when it was announced that Kurt Cobain had committed suicide. I remembered all of those things and where I was at the time. And I, I think the reason that those things lock in for us is because of the suddenness of them. Usually, they're very, very sudden kinds of things. And they cause us to begin to reflect on, on how much time we may or may not have ourselves. All of those men that I just mentioned were young. Cobain was 27. Uh, John Lennon was 40. Kobe was 41. Elvis was 42. 42 when they died. And there is a sense when we hear that somebody of that age has died that it is out of time. In other words, it didn't happen at the right time and, and it, was, it was way too soon and it was way too young. And there's an unsettledness that enters in because it causes us to think, well, if it could happen to someone that young, maybe it could happen to me. Maybe, maybe I don't have as much time left as what I've always believed myself To have, Which begs the question, are you ready? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to meet God? The reason I ask that question is because that is the question that John himself will be dealing with in our passage of Scripture. Now, I grew up in a church world where any opportunity to remind people they were going to die was met with a hellfire brimstone, you better hang on by the skin of your teeth kind of sermon. But that's not what John is doing here. John, in in fact, is speaking to a group of people to encourage them, to encourage them that they will be ready, to express confidence in them that he believes they're ready, to help them have confidence in themselves that they indeed are going to be ready. So I think a really very practical passage, and it's an interesting passage in John because, you know, I, I tend to like... Paul's writings, because Paul goes in a straight line, A, B, C, and D, and John doesn't think that way. John goes A, Z, Q, W, F, B. I mean, he just kind of rolls around a little bit, but, but this is a pretty linear path of progression that he gives us. It's, it's a little bit unusual, I think, uh, for John's writings, and it's all about this idea of readiness. So look at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Right off the bat, you can, you can tell that, that he's speaking of readiness in a way that was meant to encourage. He wants these people to not shrink back, he says. To pull away when he appears. The, the phrase he appears here is a word that would communicate the idea, think of it, of a king showing up at one of his realms. Julie and I have become somewhat addicted to the Netflix series, The Crown. How many people have watched The Crown in here? Several of you have. It is um, It tells the story of Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth's reign, starting shortly before her ascension um, into more or less modern day. And one of the interesting things that happened in the early phases of her Uh, of her reign when she was a new face and everybody wanted to see the new queen, is that uh, people, when she would show up at various commonwealth nations, would just flock to her. They'd press to her. They'd want to get as close to her as they possibly could because there was such excitement that the sovereign had showed up in our realm. Well, that's what uh, John is trying to communicate here. He's communicating the idea of a king, Jesus, coming, appearing, in his realm, and, and imagine how you would be to see as a British subject the queen and magnify that times a billion, times a zillion, and you'd get the idea of the joy that you would have if you were ready. If you were ready. He doesn't want them to shrink back from that. He wants them to step into it enthusiastically. And he says that you can have that kind of joy and not shrink back at his appearing when Jesus comes again by abiding. Now, he's already talked a lot about abiding in chapter 2. We've mentioned that already. Abiding simply is a word that John uses to talk about a deep, vibrant, growing, daily commitment to Jesus as Savior and Lord. He says that if you are abiding, you will not shrink back when the king appears in the realm. Well, how do we know then that we're abiding, John says. Look at it again at, at, the, uh, at the end of, of or at verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, he says, here's how you know that you're abiding and therefore can anticipate with joy and be ready for the return of King Jesus if you are righteous, if you're righteous. Now, let's think about what that means. Anytime you see that word show up in the Bible, there there are three shades of meaning to it that are always in play with every reference but one of those usually comes to the top in the context of how the word is used here's the three ways that that phrase that word righteous or righteousness is used first it communicates a status in other words I know that I am saved because I'm righteous he has made me right with him through Jesus I am saved I am righteous I have status as God's child because of what Jesus has done to me. So there's that status aspect. And then there's a social aspect to it. Uh, the idea uh, of, of, of treating someone fairly, especially those who are powerless against the face of oppressors. Um, when you see the kings uh, told to reign in righteousness in the Old Testament, they are being told, I'm going to measure the effectiveness of your reign based on how you are fair and help those who are oppressed. And then there is the idea of of morality. In other words, righteousness means doing good and not evil. And again, all three of those things are in play every single time the word is used. But the context here favors the moral aspects of it. So what he is saying is, is that you will... Uh, not shrink back, you will instead reach out towards Jesus at His return if you abide in Him, and you know you are abiding in Him if you are living according to His moral example. Now, let's make sure we understand what He is saying and what He is not saying here. He is saying that one of the ways that you can know your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ is authentic is by living according to His moral example. He is not saying if you live according to his moral example, you will be saved. He is not saying that if you are an atheist and don't believe anything about God but are a moral person, that you are going to be saved in spite of yourself. He is saying that if you are giving a testimony that you are a follower of Jesus, it can be deemed credible by assessing whether or not we are living according to to Christ's moral example. And now he's going to continue this encouragement. I don't want you to shrink back. I want you to step into it when the king returns by abiding in him. And you can measure that by righteousness. But now he's going to shift from the idea of the king returning to the idea that the king who returns is also a father who loves. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. He's been talking about the king returning, using that word, he appeared. Now he's talking that this king who's returning is actually a father, and he loves you. Here's, here's how um, uh, the, the, the word is communicated best. It's the word lavished. He has lavished this love on us. If you've got the New International Version, it actually uses that word. That's the best understanding of the word. John is saying that God has loved us and has shown us that love by lavishing upon us a gift. And that gift that he has given is that we are children of God. If you give your life to Christ as Savior, you become a child of God. And if that doesn't blow you away, you just had not thought about it long enough. It blows John away because he underscores it, puts an exclamation point. When he talks about us being a child of God, he says, and so we are. Woo! He's excited. Woo is actually in the Greek. I don't know if you know that. But <laughs> he's excited. He's, he's swept away. He's captivated by this idea That he's a child of God. So John's talking about readiness here. He's saying you can be ready if you abide, if you have this ongoing daily commitment to Christ, and it's being confirmed by the fact you're following his moral example, and then don't forget, don't forget, you belong to him as a child. And you think about that, that's great. That is awesome. That's, That's awesome? Um... Because if I really think about whether or not I'm living according to Jesus' moral example, I've got to confess to you that I might jack that up more than most people. And if, if I'm a son, I wonder, I wonder if he thinks I'm a good one. And suddenly, I don't know if I'm ready at all because I'm just being honest with myself i am being transparent with myself. I, I, I have been, this month, I have been a follower of Jesus for 42 years. I still sin really, really well. For 42 years I've been a follower of Jesus. I still, still sin really, really well. I am not the son I thought I would be now as a person who would be in his 40s as a child of God. Can anybody really be ready? John anticipates this question. And so he says what he says in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children, what's the word? Now. Say it with me. We are God's children now. Not someday, not in the future. It's not that you're aspiring to be a child of God. Because you've surrendered yourself to Jesus as Savior, you are God's child now. I'm God's child now. But then he says this, and what we will be has not yet appeared. You're God's child now, but you're not the son, the child that you will be. There's a progress continuum being worked out. We are are all working our way towards something and here's what he goes on to say what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears when he comes we shall be like him well is that because we will just be given enough time to work it all out no no the reason that we will be like him look at the last words is because we shall see him as he is all of the impediments For us being able to see Christ clearly and follow Christ clearly will one day be fully taken away at His appearing, which is either His return or our death. All of that will fade away. And the grace that saved us all those years ago, for me 42 years ago, will make us perfect finally and fully in His sight. So in essence, he's kind of concluding all of this saying, There's something you need to do here. I mean, if you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, then you need to abide in Him. It's not something that you can just kick to the side and pick up when you feel like it. You need to abide in Him. And that will manifest itself as an effort to follow Christ's moral example. But at the end of the day, the reason that you're going to be before God for eternity and be ready in the first place is because of His grace. That's what makes you ready. When he appears, you'll see him as he is, and the work will be over. So we're talking about readiness. Are you ready? I have a weird habit. Actually, my family will tell you I have a variety of weird habits. But this one is weird because, admittedly, it's morbid. When I find out that someone of note has died suddenly, I did this with Kobe. I go to their, I go to their social media feeds and I see what was the ra- last record they left of their life. What was the last thing they felt it important enough to broadcast to the world? What was the last record of their life? And then if I hear um, that a, a preacher has died suddenly, you know, because our our job is so dangerous, potluck accidents or something. (laughs) It happens. I don't know how. Choke on a chicken bone, I don't know. But I, I, I will go to their church website, and I will see what's the last sermon they preached. And I do that because I'm reminded that we will be judged for every careless word every careless word, and that not many ought to aspire to be teachers. And I know that I don't know how much time I have left. And so I want to preach every sermon in a way that I won't be embarrassed if that's the last record I leave because we just don't know how much time we have. We just don't. And so... Can we be, how can we be ready? The summary application of what we have read this morning gives us two things to consider. First, be ready by continuing your commitment. Be ready by continuing your commitment. Our commitment to Jesus in Southern Baptist life for about 100 years has boiled down to something like this. Come forward when you're young, mama will cry, the church will clap, you'll get baptized, say a few words, and you are golden for eternity. That's that's the Southern Baptist gospel plea for about a hundred years, in all honesty. But let me ask you something, based on what we have read here this morning, is there any reason to believe that that means you're ready to meet God? No. No, you're ready to meet God if after that moment there's a radical change in your life and you're messing it up Time and time again, but you're pressing on and you're pursuing and you're living out and you're grinding and you're doing everything you can to connect deeply with Christ and His moral example is being manifest in the life that you have. And that righteousness, that moral example is one of the key things that we can look at to see if our relationship with Jesus is indeed valid. So we need to ask ourselves then, what is that moral example? What does it mean to follow the moral example of Christ as someone who is bearing testimony that they are His? The problem with coming to an answer there is that a good deal of what we call morality is culturally conditioned. In other words, it's not because of something that we can find in the Word, but instead something secondary or tertiary down the road that we have begun to accept from our culture is good versus bad. That's what determines for most of us what is good versus bad. My favorite example of this was given to me by a, a guy I worked with 25 years ago. He was a a minister in North Carolina, and they hosted a group of Romanian pastors. You know, pastors get together cross-cultural, having a really super good time, went out to lunch. All of the Romanian pastors in front of these North Carolina pastors ordered beer with lunch. Oh, my goodness. Those pastors, I, whew, I'm about to pass out. I, I mean, there's a preacher drinking beer in front of me. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And they were shocked and horrified. And then after lunch all of the North Carolina pastors went out and smoked a cigarette. Can you believe those guys (laughs) were smoking or drinking? And the Romanian pastors were horrified at that because in Western Europe and in a lot of of countries outside of the United States consuming alcohol is, is is a normative kind of thing but A key visible evidence of whether or not you're a follower of Jesus is whether or not you smoke tobacco. So that's what I mean when I say that a lot of our morality is is culturally conditioned. So how can we work that out? How do we know whether or not we're living according to Christ's moral example? Christ essentially answered the question, what is morality? He was asked one time, you know, what's the most important thing? What's the great commandment? And basically, he said, here's how you can know if you're living according to the moral example that I set for you, that Scripture sets for you, at doing what God asks us to do. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In essence, he is saying, ground yourself in the love of God, give yourself fully and completely to Him, and then in all your social interactions, put the other person First. So righteousness starts with how do I best honor God in this situation, and how do I best serve the other person in this situation? It is a a another riff on on Jesus gives giving that answer. It's another riff on things that we find in the Old Testament. One of the key ethical passages in the Old Testament is Micah 6.8. It says, uh, "How do we know uh, what does God require of you?" Uh, as as one of his and he says you need to do justice need to treat people fairly need to love kindness you need to put others first and you need to walk humbly with the lord your god you need to give yourself finally and fully to him it's just an old testament way of saying that righteousness starts with asking myself in any ethical situation how do i best honor god with this and then how do i put the other person first that's the framework that we assess morality so what about those Romanian pastors and those North Carolina pastors how does that help them know what to do in that situation if you're putting the other first and you know you're causing offense you don't do it as soon as you find out the offense is there you step away from it that's how that winds up working out. So we're ready by continuing in our commitment, by engaging God at the personal level through Jesus Christ, abiding in Him, building that deep and powerful connection with Him, and then putting others first, living righteously. So be ready by continuing in your commitment. And then finally, be ready by rejoicing in His character, Not rejoicing in your character because yours is faulty and mine's faulty. I am not going to get ready by saying I am ready. I don't rejoice in my character. I rejoice in His character as a good Father. I am His child. He is lavished upon me love in making me his child. My ultimate confidence is not in my ability to keep my commitment or to maintain a moral example. My ultimate confidence is that I have a good father. Now, I get if you, if you grew up in a situation where you didn't have a good father, uh, an absent father, an abusive father, I get how that can be difficult to grasp and I ache for you and I'm sorry that you're having to wade through all of that relational trauma to get there. But I do, I do want you to imagine what a father should be and then imagine how much more our father is than that. If you're still having trouble, imagine your own love for your children as a parent, might your child disappoint you? Yes. Might you have to make some hard choices to correct them? Yes. Will they ever stop being your child? No. They just never will. I, I think most people know. Um, I'm one of two children. Um, my parents were able to conceive and have me naturally, and then they couldn't, and so my sister, 10 years my junior, roughly, is adopted. And that adoption was finalized when I was nine years old. And our entire family went to the courthouse for that finalization. And, uh, you know, as a nine-year-old, you know, I thought there was going to be a jury and a guy in a black robe, you know, (laughs) all that kind of stuff. And what I remember of it, uh, we just went into his chambers, little tiny room in Cherokee County, Oklahoma, Cherokee County Courthouse, And he asked some questions, you know, do you want to do this? Are you certain you're doing this? He looked at all the reports and all the home visits and everything looked good. And then I remembered him saying to my parents, when I sign these papers, she's yours. So if you all wind up not being able to get along anymore, wind up divorcing, she doesn't cease to be your child. Even if you screw up, she is going to be your child. And I thought, he's going to sign paper, and it's done. I mean, it's just done. She's never going to be anything more than or less than my sister, it's fixed. There's a reason that Scripture defines the process by which we become God's children as adoption we are not naturally born we are not emanating from the father as the son is to use theological language but because of the sacrifice of Christ and our unrighteousness our sin being taken away we are made righteous as he is righteous and we become his child forever and nothing can take that away there's permanence to it behold what what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we shall be called the children of God and so we are so here's what happens to get ready the sober commitment the clear-eyed commitment that you make to Christ overwhelms your life and becomes the controlling influence for the rest of your life you deepen that connection with Christ and as that happens his life begins to flow through you so what at first happens with great effort begins to happen naturally and your life begins to bear the the evidence of Christ his moral example is lived out through you and then when you screw up and you will remember he's your father And He's not going to leave you. And He will get you ultimately where you need to be. Let's go to the Father in prayer.